This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That is such a great question. That's a compelling question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I am flying solo this time. No co-host since we're all on lockdown and scheduling people has been quite difficult recently. But I do have three amazing authors to speak with, and we're going to get right to it. I do want to thank our sponsor, Sisters in Crime. This national organization is a fantastic resource for writers, both established and up and coming. And in this time when we're all stuck at home and unable to get out and meet up with people, Sisters in Crime is a great resource for answers, for mentorship and information about the crime writing community. So visit sistersincrime.org for more information and to sign up. So let's get right down to it. Uh, My first guest is Elizabeth Little. She is the author of the novel Dear Daughter and now her latest Pretty as a Picture. This book is about a film editor, which is a subject near and dear to my heart, who works on a film that turns into kind of a nightmare. And then she has to become an amateur sleuth in order to solve the real crime the movie is based on. So here's my chat with Elizabeth Little. Well, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. But it's been, by my calculations, almost six years since your last novel, Dear Daughter. Now, I'm fascinated by this because I think in that time, if my math is correct, I put out 13 books. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not trying to shame you at all, but I just want to know, I'm always curious about writer's process. Like, are you just naturally a slower writer or is this just, you know, hey, life gets in the way? Is this, did you start and stop on several projects? How did, how did we get such a gap? Yeah, all of those things combined. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm certainly not a speedy writer. I think in ideal in an ideal situation, I'd be able to put a book out every two years. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, is, you know, Dear Daughter was my first novel. I'd written two nonfiction books before that. And I think there's something that happens with the first novel where you're kind of going in blind. And so it's, I think it's a little bit easy because you don't know what you're doing. You can just right. like go all the way through and you have all of that fantastic arrogance of someone who doesn't know anything. And then <laughs> when the second book comes around, you know, just enough that it becomes really, really hard, but not enough that you can figure out the answers to your problems. Mm. It's a very weird sort of liminal space. And so with me, one of the things that happened is I wrote an entirely other book that I threw away. Oh, no. Yeah, I wrote uh, 85,000 words of a novel and decided that it just wasn't working. It just wasn't good enough. And I was lucky enough to have a publisher that was willing to let me say, yeah, I'm going to throw this out and start fresh. Or maybe that's just an indication of how bad it was that even like <laughs> my, even my corporate publisher was like, oh, God, yeah, please take some time. <laughs> but I think probably the the primary thing that slowed this down was you know, being a mom with, I mean, I think this is the same with any parent is you're always going to be surprised by what you have to learn to navigate with your kid. And it's, it's never going to be the thing that you expect it's going to be. So with my son, yeah, it slowed me down a little bit, but I, I I think I like him enough. (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think that I'm okay with it. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, you'll, you've you've saved money on therapy bills for later down the road. Think, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy never loved me, but boy, she's really prolific. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. Well, but you are back with Pretty as a Picture. Uh, and I immediately was excited about this book because uh, I don't talk about a whole lot on the show, but my day job is as an editor. I'm a television editor. Not, I don't do a whole lot of film, but this book centers around a film editor. And it's not usually an occupation that gets a lot of time on the page. No, it's not. It's um, I don't know if there are actually any other crime novels that I can think of where that is the amateur sleuth profession. But it's such an incredible analog for detective work, right? And you know this better than I do, uh, because the job is to piece together a story from existing footage slash clues. And I found that it worked so nicely with the routine and the sort of general narrative beats that we expect in a detective story. To have someone who was used to being observant, to looking at a scene and trying to interpret the stories behind the characters and the setting and and all of the details, the visual details. So it, it worked really nicely. I don't think I planned for it to be that nice. I just liked the job because it is, A, most editors I know are lovely, weird people. And I knew I wanted to write <laughs> a lovely, weird protagonist from the outset. Um, and also, it gave me the chance to explore this very fun and bizarre relationship between feature editors and feature directors. Yeah. And I suppose the book, in some ways, was inspired by me being a little bit annoyed with my husband who who happens to be a uh, a film director and so <laughs> i wanted to write a book that in large part made fun of directors and so it just naturally made sense <laughs> that my protagonist would be an editor <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's interesting because i've i've always definitely equated a, a large part of my job and just the brain space that it takes to be an editor is very similar to being a writer in terms mm -hmm. of like say like i'm i'm constantly thinking about story and structure and and the efficiency of, mm -hmm. of that i mean it's like you know that's why my books tend to be shorter because i'm always like cut to the chase cut to the chase but you make a great point about about piecing together clues i mean that's that's an interesting did is that something that that you knew right away or is that something that you sort of discovered along the way yeah it was something that i that i figured out as i went because you know i'm uh, definitely not an editor. And although I, I know editors and am enough of a movie aficionado that I have a, a fairly decent background in film knowledge. And, you know, I, I, again, live with a director. So whenever I have questions, I can just like shout at him from across the house. <laughs> but no, that was something that I, that I discovered in the writing process, which is one of my favorite things about writing when you sort of yes. learn, learn halfway through that you were maybe smarter than you realized. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you, you said you know some editors, and uh, I've I've known you for a while now. But uh, I'm trying not to be offended that you didn't call me and ask for any advice. <laughs> it is because, and here's the second aspect to my protagonist, which is the one that is drawn entirely from me. I I know it. I know it is going to sound weird because I probably sound completely comfortable from a distance talking talking to you over our computers. I have nearly crippling social anxiety. So in order for me to 
exist in the world to go out and actually interact with people and to be proactive about contacting people, it honestly usually takes actual anti-anxiety medication. (laughs) So it's definitely something that um, I thought about. And then I decided it would be that I'm just too weird and too much trouble. (laughs) No, you were were describing... The qualities that it takes to become a good editor. You need to like <laughs> you need to like being shut away in a windowless room for hours on end. Oh. Yeah, no, and and I think it, actually that's one of the ways that it that I was really well suited to writing the story because I was able to connect pretty intensely with my character's personality, even if I was less familiar with some of the technical aspects of her job. But I certainly understood her mindset. Yeah, uh, but outside of her job, uh, she tends to be a little bit of a an interpersonal disaster. Well, and and again, speaking from experience, I mean that's that's part of it that absolutely rings true about her character. Like wh- whether people will recognize that or not, I, any editor who reads this book will immediately relate to her. <laughs> they, that that means a lot to me, I and mean, maybe that's also why I've I'm friends with editors. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it seems like you can't live in L.A. for too long without writing a book about the industry eventually, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, you alluded to it a little bit, but can you give us a little any insight? Was there a, an inciting incident with your husband that made you uh, think, OK, I'm going to take directors down a peg? <laughs> yeah, no, there totally was, though. Um, so my husband, a couple of years ago, went away for, I, I think, about two months to shoot a movie in Georgia. And I cannot emphasize enough how little artistic value there was to this production. (laughs) (laughs) Does he share the same feeling or is this your opinion only? Well, I mean, he's a director, so he loves the process, right? He loves being on set. He's never happier than when he's on a film set. But so he went to Georgia for two months to make this terrible movie. And um, he, he told me one day, he was just, it was a frustrating production. And he said, I'm just finding that the only way to get things done is to yell at people. Ooh. I think that's just how you have to do it. You just have to yell. And, and I was like, I don't think that's true. I think that is a story that male directors tell themselves that there is a certain archetype archetypal male director, rather, um, who we forgive a great deal of bad behavior because it's considered to be in the service of of art. Mm. Um, And I'm like, I really think that probably you don't need to yell at people about a movie called Party Boat. I truly, (laughs) I truly don't think that's true. (laughs) And so I knew I, I knew then that I wanted to write a book that really centered on a director who embodied a lot of those worst traits. Well, and then in in the course of sh- making this film, Marissa, the main character, she gets uh, you know caught into this mystery that she then uh, is trying to solve, and it almost takes uh, it's got like almost this true crime kind of mm-hmm. aspect to it, where she gets involved with trying to figure it out in a way that I feel like there's a lot of true crime is very popular right now. There's a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, of shows. I mean, I would think in a time when things feel very uncertain and people, uh, the, sort of the general attitude is like that the whole world is falling apart. I would think that we would want fluff and comfort, but uh, why do you, what do you think it is in us that loves to dig into the dark side of humanity when things are already bad? <laughs> 
I know it's something I it, it's something that I puzzle over a lot, and you know, both of us we're we're in the business of writing about dark, awful things. I think part of it is a sort of natural human impulse to move right up, right up to the edge, you know, to like put your toes over the edge and, and look down into the abyss, sort of impulse. And I think that's pretty natural. But I don't mm -hmm. think that's 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 all the true crime boom is about. I mean, part of it is also about. Uh, taking control of a violent world by feeling as if you might be able to be an amateur sleuth, you know? Oh, um, that's, that's a good point. But it, but of course, I think a, a lot of the times it's, you know, quite irresponsible. And then you off... <laughs> I mean, it is, you know? It's like well, we're not... And, and, is... and that, you know, Marissa does get in maybe a little over her head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, totally. Um, you know, it's a, the same sort of thing that you see on, on Twitter where it's like we've moved into this world where we think that we all could potentially be experts on anything. But in fact, you know, maybe sometimes we should just do the thing that we know how to do. Right. Well, is there any part of you that is, is similar to Marissa? And like, if, if you were faced with a, a mystery like this, do you think you would take the steps that she takes to get to the bottom no, of it? No way. No. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> turn it over to the authorities. <laughs> I would absolutely turn it over to the authorities. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm skeptical of authority, but I'm even more skeptical of me knowing anything about how to proceed in an ethical manner in, in a situation like that. Oh, that's that's probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> more, more, more people need to be uh, more frightened, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we certainly hope that it's not going to be another six years before the no. next book. Now, is that book that you scrapped, is there any bit of that that you can salvage? Or was that just a wholesale throw it out? Do you have any, is there anything appealing about going back and trying to fix it? Or is that just more work than it's worth? Yeah, no, I think it's probably something I had to write to teach myself a little bit more about novel writing. Um, uh -huh. I don't think there's anything salvageable in it. I'm glad I wrote it because I think I learned a lot, but I'm, I'm not going back to it. Was Dear Daughter truly the first novel that you completed? It was, yeah. So you, you, almost, you almost did it in reverse because so many of us start with that first novel and then you go, oh, no, this is junk and I'm going to put this away and no one's ever going to see it. So you, you kind of flipped it. <laughs> I did, yeah. I mean, I think everyone has to have some junk, right? Because we yeah. all have to, uh, we, we're all just trying to learn how to do this. Um, I think I got lucky with the first one, but you have to pay the piper eventually, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so that second book was where I really needed to flounder for a bit. Um, I mean, it's good because honestly, if I'd been able to write a second book as relatively easily as I wrote Dear Daughter, I'd probably be like an insufferable monster. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Well, we're glad that you're humble. <laughs> well, next up is debut author Scott Carson in his new novel, The Chill. This is a creepy and atmospheric thriller about a town that was drowned in order to make way for a reservoir to feed New York City's water supply but there's something under the water and it's coming to the surface. You know, and that's not the only mystery here. Scott Carson himself has a secret. I welcome now to Writer Types author Scott Carson, uh, or is it? 
it is not quite an, an, a secret uh, that Scott Carson is a pen name for one Michael Carita. So, uh, Michael, am I supposed to keep this under wraps? Is this really supposed to be a secret? No, I think the uh, the secret is is long gone. Um, I will admit that I really liked the idea of having it as a complete secret, but there are there are publishing reasons why people <laughs> were not excited about that. And then on a personal level, when you're fortunate enough to have developed a following over the years of people who are willing to devote time and money to reading your stories, you don't really want to hide those stories from people. You know, that didn't seem <laughs> in keeping with the idea. So <laughs> now when you started this book right from the inception, were you thinking this is going to be a pen name, kind of a, an alter ego, or did that come later in the process? No, that was before starting the book, but I always wanted to go back to the, the supernatural type of storytelling. And it's been 10 years. It's hard to believe, but it's been 10 years since I did a book in that genre. So I wanted to sort of create, for lack of a better term, a distinct brand for the supernatural thrillers, the horror, whatever you want to call it. Well, and did it free you up at all to, you know, change up a little bit of your writing style? I mean, it's to me, it's very, still very much a, a Michael Carita book, but, uh, you know, th there's surely there are subtle ways in which you could change up your, your own style and your own voice when you're sort of functioning under this uh, guise, I guess. You know, I had hoped for much more of that. I, I had hoped for the sort of distinct voice of, I'm thinking particularly for, uh, Donald Westlake and Richard Stark. Like you knew Stark was one thing and Westlake was another. Right. Uh, but then once I got into the actual writing process, it just became, it was the same struggle of, you know, character and story. Um, and I only know one way to approach storytelling. And I think one of the only things you can really bring to the table that is unique is voice. I would agree with you. I think it's very evident. If, if someone has no idea that it's me, I doubt that reader will be surprised to learn that it is me because I think yeah. voice is something that I just can't disguise. Well, so with the chill, I think a lot of people have the idea that sort of living on a nice lake in you know upstate New York is kind of a perfect life. And you, you kind of ruin that idea with this book. Uh <laughs> Now, in your little, uh, in your fake uh, bio there at the end for Scott Carson, it does say that uh, you live near a dam. Is is that completely made up or is that true? No, that's true. So we kind of divide time between Bloomington, Indiana and Camden, Maine. Our house in Maine is directly above a lake with, with a dam and all of its charming signs about when the siren will go off and the red light will flash to signal the event of a break. So that sort of was in the back of my mind, along with an article I'd read in um, 2016, talking about the greatest threat to New York City being the collapse of one of the two functioning water tunnels that, um, that feed the city. Well, it, it seems like everything in this book is frighteningly plausible. And as you just alluded to, I mean, it, there is a lot of this that's based in fact and, and things that you discovered from real life. And, uh, and you really took the uh, pictures worth a thousand words thing to heart, right? Was it some of the photographs that really solidified this idea in your head? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, New York City Public Library has an archive from the construction of the water tunnels and the aqueducts and the reservoirs. 
it's just it's a really it's a beautiful and really haunting collection because you have the before and after of these villages and i think while we can all grasp the you know concept of well the the greater good the need to provide water for a city of millions there's also the loss and tragedy of these small villages that were wiped off the map and when you look at these photographs and, and see the the transition it's the sort of storytelling that to me demands a ghost story yeah i mean the idea that that this happened that they would just flood these valleys and and wipe out entire you know groups of people that you said have, have lived there for for decades and decades i mean that's that seems crazy in in today's world but i mean this this was a fairly common occurrence yeah yeah i mean in indiana we have lake monroe near my hometown of bloomington and one of the first jobs i ever had in newspapers i don't know if you've ever been in a newspaper morgue but they have these great bound volumes that i just absolutely love so much better than microfilm and I would go through those to create this column called Hoosier History. You know, today, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago kind of things. And I remember as I was compiling that, the building of Lake Monroe was a really big deal in the 50s and 60s. But there were also these little villages, you know, Elkinsville, these tiny towns that are now largely forgotten. But again, you have these multi-generation homesteads and when you think about identity, the, the way people really have their sense of self, community is a big part of that. Yeah. And so when you think about the actual drowning of a community, it's a powerful thing. Uh, is, is digging through history uh, always been an interest of yours? Is this something that has always been a, an inspiration for stories? Absolutely. I think I always have been drawn to stories where past is an active player in in the present narrative and you can do that obviously without a ghost story but the ghost story is the form where they literally share the same terrain past and present are joined and usually pushing and pulling at one another do you ever give any thought to try and do to mine your own history or maybe your family's history to, to try to dig up stories I spend most of my time, when I think about my family history, I spend most of my time trying to bury it, you know, keep those secrets <laughs> hidden far from public view. Um, it seems like writers are much more willing to take the deep dive and to learn so much more about complete strangers sometimes than we are about our own lives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, because here's a, a funny anecdote sort of along those lines. When I teach writing workshops, I love to teach a class that I call uh, narrative suspense, right? It's how to keep the reader emotionally invested and engaged. What I really enjoy doing there is blending some students who are working on novels with students who are working on narrative nonfiction or memoir. And one thing I've noticed is if you get, you know, 10 or 12 students with that mix in a group, the novelists are always very reluctant to critique the memoir um, the memoirists are never shy about critiquing anything. And I think that's a very interesting indication of the different, the different muscle they're exercising. You, you have an ability to turn an unflinching gaze onto yourself as well as onto, you know, a fictional manuscript. It's, it's very entertaining to me and, and interesting to me to watch that play out over the course of a workshop. 
Well, when you were a very young writer, let's like let's go back to like the first short stories you're writing, probably in junior high or high school. I mean, what what were you always a, a genre guy? What were you trying to emulate a certain voice? How how did you get your start? Yeah, it was always fiction. It was probably for, it was the most part in the mystery suspense genre um and it goes back i mean it goes back to elementary school i don't remember a time in my life that i wasn't writing i always wanted to write books i wasn't really a short story guy so i think i was 15 when when i wrote my first book that would have been around the 300 page mark um and then i was a freshman at um, indiana university when i wrote what to me is the first lincoln perry novel it was never published but it was when I met the characters, and then the sequel to that would have been Tonight I Said Goodbye, which was my first published book. Wow. Well, I, I try to think back of what I was doing at that time, and uh, it was nothing quite so productive. <laughs> See, that's it, it's interesting to look back on it, though, because it does. I have enough remove now where it seems kind of oddly industrious, but it, it didn't feel that way. It was something, and this is one of the really valuable things I learned about writing in that it can be done with very limited time. Yeah. Just putting down a few pages a day to entertain myself. You know, I played sports. I had an active social life. I at least did enough homework to keep the school from throwing me out completely. And I don't <laughs> remember any sense of making sacrifice to create that time. It felt pretty easy. It, it, it to me, is the clearest indication I've had in my life of the power of habit. So yeah. going to the gym five times a week for 15 years, it doesn't, it, you know, it's not, a, it doesn't feel like a challenge to show up on Monday. Yeah. Well, and that right there, I think is probably the most important lesson that most young writers need to hear. Cause I, I, we all hear those people who I've, I've been accused of being very prolific. I mean, since I started publishing in 2009, like I've, I have 24 books and I get that all the time. Like, oh my gosh, where do you find the time? And I'm like, I have a day job. I have two kids. I do the podcast and all this other stuff. And it is just about, even if I only get 60 to 90 minutes a night after the whole family's gone to bed, if you, as long as you're consistent with that, as long as you're pushing the rock up the hill a little bit, then yeah, it it will come together in a, in a couple of months. And I do think that that's the difference between someone who is meant to be a writer because like you say it's like you you're you're gonna do it anyway whether you're getting published or whether it's just to entertain yourself like you're driven to do it if i had started writing i mean i always had the the hope the dream of being published but if i had started writing with much more concrete and professional and i guess i would say adult goal of attaining publication it, it probably would have been a very different experience for me um, as it was i just I enjoyed it. It was something I wanted to do and I enjoyed it. I'm curious if, do you outline? Because that's another, I don't outline and I feel like that makes the process all the more fun for me in first draft. I, I'm an outliner. I've, I come from a screenwriting background, which is all about structure and, sure. and, but I, I'm definitely an outliner, but I mean, they're, they're very loose and they're very flexible. You know, like I can just write, he goes to the apartment and confronts him. And then that can be, you know, a 3000 word <laughs> chapter well, or something. We don't have the 50 page, you know, multicolored character, ABC kind of. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I can, out, I can outline a full novel in two pages. There are times when I read about an elaborate outliner and I think, man, that would be great. 
I should try that. But I, I believe the process is so individual, um, but you can't make yourself into a different process. I don't think that's wise. Well, Michael, I'm inspired. Uh, so thank you for, uh, for sharing that with me and, and, and with the, the listeners. And uh, I think Scott Carson, uh, I think, might have a future ahead of him. I'm hoping so. He's, he owes, he owes uh, Simon & Schuster a book, so he better, <laughs> better be working. Well, now, how long uh, until we get either a novel or a real-life psychological break where you have to really contend with these two different personalities living in your head and one has to eventually defeat the other? <laughs> I feel like the showdown will be sometime around, let's say, 2024. It'll be... All right. When, when Carson has amassed like a three title backlist and makes, I, I can see that guy trying to pull off a coup. You know, right now he's, he's kind of keeping quiet. He's below the radar. I'm not sure he will be content to stay there. <laughs> if, if all of a sudden he's outselling you three to one, is, uh, is somehow Scott Carson and they're getting killed off? Well, I guess I'd root for him. <laughs> Okay, it's time for the elevator pitch, where indie and small press authors tell us about their latest book. This time we have author Faye Snowden telling us about her book, A Killing Fire. So take it away, Faye. Hi there. My name is Faye Snowden, and I'm a writer from Northern California. With my latest mystery, A Killing Fire, I have crossed the line from romantic suspense straight into noir fiction. A Killing Fire is a very dark book, and it features Louisiana homicide detective Raven Burns. And Raven has spent her entire life trying to prove that she is not her father's child. Floyd Fire Burns happens to be a notorious serial killer, um, not a very good guy. He has done some very bad things. And when the book opens, Raven is still running from Floyd because... She hears his voice in her head, always reminding her of what she thinks of an evil part of her soul that is bursting to get out. So the town that Raven is from does not trust Raven either. Bird's Landing remembers quite well what Floyd has done. And when a local sociolite with a connection to Raven is murdered, the town feels it has the ammunition that it needs to see Raven gone. So with her badge on the line, Raven investigates and things go worse from there because the clues she turns up um, makes her think about what her father has done and her own complicity in the murders of Floyd uh, Burns. So how did this book start? It started like all my books start with a character. Floyd Burns one day walked into my writing studio um, with his white fedora on, his big old wide smile, his put on southern charm, and sat beside me and said, you need to put me in a story. And I looked at him and I said, I, I don't think so. But, you know, after a while I had to because, you know, it was Floyd. And that was how A Killing Fire was born. So how can you get the book? Anywhere books are sold. Your um, independent bookseller, um, it comes in all the formats, electronic, hard copy, paperback, and audio. I mean, if you want to learn more about me, just simply go to facenoden.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there where I'll have freebies and giveaways and some recipes from Louisiana, um, where I am from and also where 
Raven Burns is from. So if you get the book, I hope you enjoy it. And thank you for listening and have a great day. Thanks, Faye. And I hope the listeners are intrigued enough to go check out A Killing Fire. Next, we go to England for a chat with Sarah Pinborough. She is the author of many books in multiple genres, including the bestsellers Behind Her Eyes and Cross Her Heart. And now she's here with her latest, Dead to Her. And we had a great conversation. Sarah was a whole lot of fun, quite in contrast to the darkness in her novels. Sarah, welcome to Writer Types. Uh, And I was noticing that you started your writing career uh, writing horror novels. So I want to start way back at the beginning. And I want to know what led a young Sarah to these dark places. Um, She wasn't that young, tragically. (laughs) (laughs) But I always, I mean, I always loved dark stories. When I was at boarding school, uh, which was a horror story in itself, they had lot, you know, all the books. <laughs> all the books in the library were old, and it was all the pan books of horror and the rats, and you know. So I kind of, I always liked dark stories, although I was as a child absolutely terrified of nighttime and the dark and monsters. And I mean, my parents had to send me to boarding school so they could sleep through the night because I just would wake my mum up for ridiculous <laughs> reasons, like and say, "What are we having for lunch tomorrow?" because I didn't want to be awake, the only person awake. And even when I was in boarding school, and given that we slept like 10 to a room, if I couldn't sleep and I was scared, I <laughs> bless these two girls, there were two girls that were older than me, and I would go and wake one of them up and say, can you talk to me? Because I can't sleep because I'm scared there's something under my bed or I'm scared there's something. And so they would have to talk to me and they'd literally have to talk to me all night. Wow. Yeah, I mean, when I was when I was very small, and me and my sister shared a room, and now given that we lived in places like Africa and Syria and India, and there was not a lot of air conditioning back in the seventies. This is I'm about three or four at this point, and I would tuck myself in totally into the bed, like under my I'd go under my covers, and I'd say to my sister, "Right, I'm tucking myself in now, so the monsters can't see me now. Talk to me till I'm asleep." And she'd have to talk to me. Wow. And then, of course, I fell in love with Stephen King books and, you know, in that way that everyone who kind of grew up in the 80s did. Right. So I think for my first book, natural to go that way. I find it quite hard to stay in one genre. And even my editor will say, Sarah, you have to write a psychological thriller. All your books are too different. And I'm a bit like, no, but I thought these ones were all the same. <laughs> and she's like, no, you have to try it, you know, like because people are buying into a certain type of book. But I like, you know, I like to write fantasy. I write fairy tales. I've written historical sort of horror, historical crime. You know, I've written a lot of books, you know, and only about four of them have been successful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's four more than me. Uh, so, uh, that's, it's definitely one thing that I've noticed, and and I I wonder. I mean, is that how you are in life? Or do you have a lot of a lot of interests, a lot of things that are that are sort of pulling your attention, or or is it just a short attention span? No, as my mother put it, you've always been flighty. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I just. I mean, no, I'm a really really boring person. You know, I was born to self isolate. You know, like I'm really happy sitting at home with my dog. <laughs> You know, I've been like watching old black and white films, reading a book, showering twice a week. You know, I was this is what writers are made for. But so I'm not I'm not adventurous, I'm scared of everything. I just like lots of different kinds of stories. And I do think the one thing that mine all have in common is there is a puzzle. But most of them, even the fairy tales, there's a puzzle in there to be unlocked. 
and I'm very if I read something I really love I'm like oh god maybe I should try and write a book like that and then I think no that's what that person does you have to try and write your own book you know which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't uh, that that is such a temptation, isn't it? When you, when you read something that really works, you think, "Oh, I should try that." Yeah, and I think, but you know, there's. I mean, this is a really first world problem that I expect no sympathy for, and it is the world's smallest violin I'm playing. But when I was writing books for a lot less money, you can kind of write what you want. You know, people are like, "Oh yeah, that sounds all right." Once you start earning a lot of money from books, there's a long way to fall from that. You know, and there's a long way down from there. And you're kind of like, oh, you've got to get the story. You know, I think before the book that I'm about to start writing, which I'm also doing the TV for at the same time, which is a bit of a head mess. But I handed in about 10 outlines and they kept saying to me, no, Sarah, that's not a psychological thriller. No, Sarah, that's a horror. No, Sarah, that's (laughs) it. And I was like, oh, bugger, I thought it wasn't. And I really thought I was you know, handing in what they wanted. But then it's finding what they want that is also what you want. Exactly, yeah. Now, you uh, you alluded to uh, the fact that you moved around a lot as, as a kid. I wonder if this also uh, contributes to your interest in a, in a lot of different things. If, if you were never landed in one place for very long, you obviously got exposed to a lot of uh, different cultures, different, uh, you know, styles of, of artwork and entertainment and things like that. Do you think that influences your uh, eclecticism in your writing as well? Oh, for sure, I think. Looking back more so than, you know, when I was younger, I didn't really think about it. But now that I've sort of been in one place for a while, I do. Th- I mean, like, I used to write a lot of short stories set in various places from my youth. And I do think um, there's some, you know, like this idea of lost people who aren't really settled anywhere comes up quite a lot in my books, which I think comes from that. You do have a broader view of the world if you've lived in a lot of, you know, like I was raised in Syria. So, you know, I don't have that anti-Arab sentiment that a lot of people do. You know, I loved it. You know, I, I think I look at Syria now and I think, well, God, no wonder we should take more refugees. Look how we're panicking over a virus, you know, <laughs> like let's let those people come in. So I'm, I'm a right. bit more global, maybe. But I think most people, you learn, you know, if you read, you learn more about other people's lives from reading in a lot of ways because although I did travel a lot I traveled a lot as a diplomat's daughter you know it's not exactly getting down in the nitty-gritty of living in in a you know the worst parts of a country or the worst parts of the world do you know I'm not so sure the traveling influences me as much as the boarding school you know I think boarding school hangs over quite a lot of what I do in that it it was a very there's there have been studies done on children who went to English boarding schools in the 80s and none of them are good (laughs) you know like they really leave you kind of emotionally incapable of committing you know there's so many things that and I'm like oh yeah that's me that's me that's me that's me so I think maybe boarding school was more influential than the travel but the two are kind of wound into one thing you know so let's talk about the new book dead to her yes uh this is uh, you talk you tell the story of a woman who wants to protect this very sort of charmed life that she's got. Uh, and she goes to incredible lengths to do it. <laughs> I love those women. <laughs> well, is, is this inspired by anyone do you know? Do you know anybody who's, who's clinging on to something and perhaps making some bad choices because of it? No, not particularly. I think it was just that the book before this one, Cross Her Heart, was quite a serious book. You know, the subject matter was very serious. It dealt with child killings and abuse and all sorts of things. And 
you know, I hadn't realised quite how bad 2020 was going to get, but I did think the world's a bit rubbish. I want to write something fun. What I, I like to do, if I'm because I'm really rubbish at sticking with one thing, so Behind Her Eyes was a psychological thriller with some added weird. Cross Her Heart was actually about how we treat criminals that, that are back out in society and how we have perceptions of people and whether people can change. And, you know, so it wasn't really, I mean, it was a psychological thriller, but I was really exploring those things. And this one, <laughs> to get back to my shallow personality, I really fancied right, trying my hand at kind of a psychological thriller that was wrapped up in kind of one of those 1980s bonk busters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the, you know, I loved those kind of Sidney Sheldon, Barbara Bradford, you know, those kind of, there was always gorgeous women being horrible to each other. And, you know, and I just thought, you know, with really rich people. And I'd been to, um, and this is terrible because these, the people I met at this place were all absolutely lovely. But I went to a place called um, Sea Island in Georgia to do, a friend of mine was in Downton Abbey and she was doing a Downton Abbey event there. And I went with her and it's an amazing place. And people jet, it's like a private members club and people come on private jets from Atlanta. And and I was like, God, imagine if this suddenly was your life. You know, you suddenly came into this from a poor background or whatever. How do you, how do you fit into all these families that have got, that are so proud of their um, history? You know, because a lot of those old wealthy families in America, it's a bit like royalty over here. Right. It wasn't influenced by anyone I knew, but I did think we all have this dream of marrying. Well, we don't. I mean, my mother still says, oh, you just need to marry a rich man, which goes against every feminist bone in my body. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like she still thinks I should get a proper job. But um, I think girls always have the thing that you just marry a rich man and your life's going to be perfect. And actually, you know, both the second wives in this book realise that that doesn't that comes at a hefty price i mean they're all atrocious people being awful to each other in that book you know i mean i like them all but they're awful people yeah but i just wanted it to be fun a little bit sexy a little bit dark well i'm gonna guess by a couple of of your recent books like behind her eyes Mm. and, and and with this with dead to her i mean it seems like maybe you don't have a very favorable view of marriage I mean, I'm quite romantic at heart. Although I did, I just broke up with someone and he said to me, he said, you think I've got issues, but I've read your books. They're all man-hating. I'm like, they're psychological thrillers. They're supposed to be like, I want to write about women. I don't want to write about men. So um, no, I mean, I'm not a natural marriage person. I was married very, very briefly. I got married in Vegas, which was not my wisest move when I was 28. It did not last I know, it was silly. I just figured that maybe I should try it because everybody else was giving it a go. <laughs> I'm not designed for cohabitation. And I am and I think the thing is, the older you get, like until I was 32, I was in relationship, 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 relationship. And then as you get older and you're earning your own money and you've got your own house, the idea of like someone moving in with you is kind of, meh. you know, so I'm kind of more, I just want someone I can, you know, go for dinner with and watch a movie with on a Wednesday and a Saturday or something. (laughs) So it's not that I'm not favourable about marriage, but I'm quite individual, I guess. An ex-boyfriend of mine said that I was the most self-contained person he'd ever met. Well, it gives you more time to write and, and we're all grateful for that. Thank you. So there you go. Some great options for your quarantine reading lists and and even your non-quarantine reading lists for when this finally all ends and we get back to whatever will pass for normal from here on out. 
I'll be back soon with more for your Virus Bunker listening. Uh, I'm banking a lot of interviews for you to have some bonus material during this lockdown, so be on the lookout for some new episodes sooner rather than later. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find me at writertypespodcast.com, and there are links to our Patreon page there. I'm over at Twitter, at writertypes. If you get a chance, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. And once again, a big thanks to our sponsor, Sisters in Crime. If you write any flavor of crime fiction, you really should be a member. It's quick and easy to sign up at sistersincrime.org. We'll see you very soon for more writer types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>